Hey, everybody, for this context clues, we've cobbled together sections from three past episodes of American Hysteria in order to give you some context for our upcoming series on the surprising origins and early history of the anti-abortion movement. Because up until the 1970s, Abortion was nowhere near the hot-button outrage machine that it is today. And in fact, it was hardly a religious issue at all. Instead, we can look to a group that now champions the pro-choice cause, doctors of scientific medicine. Up until the 1800s, there wasn't a system in place to accredit doctors, and so wacky patent medicines were sold by traveling salesmen, most of whom presented themselves as a form of physician, someone with superior knowledge that could cure whatever ails ya. But once modern medicine began to reshape the human lifespan and the human experience, science began to light the way toward more effective treatments, cures, medicines, and surgeries. These new doctors hated the patent medicine craze, both for the legitimate reason that these miracle cures were often at best useless and at worst dangerous but also for reasons we can deem a little more selfish. There was indeed a desperate need for scientific oversight in the medical world, but that doesn't mean that the affluent white man doctors at this time knew what the fuck they were doing either. But what many of them did know is that these patent medicine men and women were their direct and singular competition. And if they could get rid of the quacks and the charlatans, they could reign supreme in the field of birth, which meant usurping not just these hucksters, but also a national community that was made up almost entirely of women. So let's take a listen to a section from our episode called Quackery to get a little context on the more ridiculous history of patent medicine. For much of our history, the popular cure for what ails ya was bloodletting, or the draining of the blood to balance what was known then as the humors, or different bodily fluids. Basically, too much blood was the problem, which is absolutely terrifying. Even more terrifying, these procedures were not the jurisdiction of doctors, but instead what was then called barber surgeons, which is exactly what it sounds like. In fact, the red and white striped barber pole as we know it was created to signify that bloodletting took place inside, with the red symbolizing blood and the white symbolizing bandages. Known disgustingly as breathing the vein, bloodletting also took the form of leeches, sometimes applied 50 at a time in shacks with dirt floors known as leech houses. This treatment that certainly killed far more than it helped was most likely the cause of George Washington's death, who asked to be treated with the cure after waking up with a sore throat and fever. The next day he was drained of more than half of his blood and he died soon after. 
As the advancements in science and medicine proved that bloodletting wasn't the cure-all previously thought, it didn't necessarily provide a way forward. And so a vacuum opened up. A vacuum of so many medical and psychological problems with so little idea of how to actually fix them. And this vacuum would be filled by the historical Gwyneth Paltrow's of the world, the Dr. Oz's. And in the age of Barnum and Bailey's showmanship, these men were flamboyant cowboy charlatans, traveling from town to town, hucking bogus cure-all medicines, and disappearing into the night before the town knew they were duped. The thing that my snake oil tonic won't cure ain't been discovered. Aches and pains, colds, lameness, rheumatism, dandruff. Stomachache, headache, toothache, neuralgia, asthma, gout, and baldness. Snake oil peps you up, and it's the thing for whatever ails you. Patent medicine men were putting on the best shows in America, apart from those sexy seances we mentioned in Talking to the Dead. The original snake oil salesman, as these quacksters are still referred to, was a man named Clark Stanley, who liked to call himself the Rattlesnake King, who sold patented snake oil liniment that promised to cure any pain. He invoked the noble savage stereotype in his pitches, saying he learned of this magic cure from the Hopi Indians. Instead, he actually appropriated it from Chinese immigrants who used water snake oil as an anti-inflammatory, which it actually is. However, Stanley's concoction didn't even contain any so-called snake oil, period. But him and the other charlatans who were revealing their miracle products did so with this traveling circus-like vaudevillian show, featuring acts like muscle men, which were basically beefed-up dudes performing feats of strength apparently afforded to them by whatever medicine was being peddled. And of course, a finale in which the showmen would invite people from the crowd on stage and magically cure them with their patent medicine. But of course, these folks were planted in the audience to limp on stage with a bad leg and then sashay away after just one dose as the crowds screamed for the glass bottles of bullshit or some kind of mixture of alcohol, opium, cocaine, or heroin, some of the most popular ingredients that, hmm, somehow made patients feel a little better after consuming them. There were the famous Pink Pills for Pale People, or PPPP, that was said to cure consumption and anemia. Then there was Radithor, a patent medicine made with distilled radium, leading to a famous socialite named Eben Byers to suffer a death in which his teeth fell out and his bones just started snapping. A Wall Street Journal article so respectfully wrote, quote, The radium water worked fine, until his jaw came off. And just for good measure, strychnine was peddled as an aphrodisiac. One product was called bovinine, which was made of alcohol, beef blood, and salt, which claimed to help with ailments as various as anemia, diabetes, cholera, typhoid, malnutrition, rickets, and nervous exhaustion. One postcard ad for the product showed a woman with her eyes closed and a glass of blood-red liquid next to her. The caption reads, quote, Look on me in my lassitude reclining, my nervous body languid, pale and lean. Now hold me up to where the light is shining, and mark the magic powers of bovinine. When you held the postcard up to the light, and this is hella sick, the woman's eyes open and a ghost of a big steer materializes in the window along with the words, quote, My life was saved by bovinine. 
The concept of eugenics was a massive cultural movement in the early 1900s that focused on the selective breeding of particular human traits to form a utopian future where everyone is of good genetic stock, which in most cases meant white, Christian, fit, healthy, and oh, so smart. But to understand the eugenics mindset, you also have to understand the history of the coveted American category of whiteness. Once again, we are here to remind you that race is a social construct that has long morphed to fit the goals of the upper class, with the first laws around abortion just so happening to coincide with the first massive wave of Irish and German immigrants who were seen as inferior and dangerous to the health of the Anglo-Saxon American family. As we'll learn over the course of our upcoming series, historical anti-abortion rhetoric has always focused far more on certain types of population control than on the spiritual rights of the sacred unborn. Here it is. The very complicated roots of Black enslavement have led to right-wing extremists and politicians promoting the idea that European immigrants were enslaved in the same way that the first Africans were. Obviously, this was never the case, but the development of the ideas of Blackness and whiteness as categories for exploitation were not inherent to the colonists. More than 80% of Europeans who took passage to America were a group called indentured servants, those who made the choice to come to America toward what they considered a better life, and they did so by signing contracts to plantation owners outlining their servitude as unpaid labor with the promise of some acreage at the end of the agreement. The first Africans to come to America, however, did not have that same choice during the infamous year of 1619 when the first group was captured from a Portuguese slave ship and brought to Virginia. This may seem unbelievable, but before the institution of slavery was actually written into law a handful of decades later, African people actually had some similar rights to white indentured servants, even the ability to vote and own land. That is, until an African man named John Punch broke his contract, fleeing a wealthy plantation owner with his two European indentured servant cohorts. The three of them were eventually captured in 1640, and John was forced into a lifetime of slavery with no possibility of freedom, while the other two Europeans simply received an extension of their old contracts. This marked the first legal moment where an African would be sentenced to a lifetime of enslavement, something that would never, ever touch their European counterparts. Indentured servants were suffering, certainly, and they would be treated with any brutality that the plantation owners decided was appropriate. In this way, poor immigrants felt far more aligned with the Africans they worked beside in the fields under the abusive eyes of the elite. 
Bacon's Rebellion of 1676 is an extremely complicated event that took place in Virginia, at first a colonial fight against local tribes. But eventually it turned into a kind of class war, with Africans and Europeans fighting side by side against the rich landowners and politicians. This moment, along with other similar uprisings, sparked an idea in the upper crust, and they purposefully employed that age-old strategy known as divide and conquer, pitting these two groups against each other to keep their own status safe, to keep the revolution at bay. As Black legal scholar Vernelia Randall said in her essay called Constructing Whiteness, quote, the large landowners had become an elite group faced with an increasingly unruly populace of mostly European small landholders and artisans, free men without land, again mostly European, and bond laborers, of whom one quarter were African descent. Soon, through legislation, the planter class differentiated black people as lesser, as a group unworthy of freedom, one that must be under total control of the wealthy in order to keep them in line and to protect the Christian Anglo-Saxons from their deviant influence. This new narrative of white supremacy gave an illusion that poor whites were just like the elite, that they could eventually reach their position, creating a status for them that was one rung above blackness. It was a way of saying, things may be bad, but at least you're a part of this better group. At least you're one of us and not one of them. This new, superior category meant to pacify white indentured servants would cost black folks the last of their rights, and they would bear the burden of this new narrative in horrific ways for the rest of the nation's history. The first of these laws, unsurprisingly, focused on white women as property, making it illegal for visibly black men to marry a woman of European blood. It became illegal, too, for black people to raise a hand to any white person, whether plantation owner or indentured servant. Soon, property and livestock owned by those who were now considered black was seized and redistributed to poor whites. Any areas that had allowed Africans to vote revoked that privilege, and black families were legally allowed to be broken up, children taken away from their parents, and sold. Within a few decades, race became the defining feature in America, and the divisions of class became foggier, with all working toward the benefit of the wealthy in a hierarchy that began the systematic snuffing out of the vital allegiances of the white and black working class. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. 
Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Friends, hello. I'm Mike Rignetta, the host of Never Post, a new and independent news podcast about and for the internet. In addition to bringing you the latest in current events, we try to figure out why the internet and the world because of the internet is the way it is. How did influencers destroy tween fashion? What is posting disease and how do you ensure you don't catch it? From what device must one send important emails? We talk about what's going on online and ask together why. Why are we like this? Find Never Post wherever you get your podcasts. And now back to the show. As the coal industry continued to grow and began to automate much of the work that the unions had fought for, Appalachians started leaving the region to find stable work in the factories in city centers. In a migration along a symbolic route known as the Hillbilly Highway, thousands entered the city of Chicago and they were not met with a warm welcome. In fact, many businesses refused to serve those they called hillbillies and would hang signs outside that said, quote, no Southerners need apply. The sudden influx of these impoverished whites shook the affluent Southerners to their cores, who had previously clung to that idea that only people of color could be that poor, that degenerate as they viewed them, and a greater need to scientifically classify and solidify categories of race emerged to reinforce, of course, white supremacy. In the following years, a new term rose to scientific and psychological prominence, feeble-mindedness, and it applied often to those deemed as white trash people. Of course, black people and other people of color needed no qualifier to be deemed trash and were considered feeble-minded as a whole, while whites would be categorized as such based on an early version of the IQ test. 
These IQ tests, however, were bound to show the results that reinforce the racist and classist views of the scientists and the elites that supported them, as poor whites and minorities in the South did not receive the same access to education, an issue that predated the Civil War and still exists today. These IQ tests were touted by University of Virginia Dean Harvey Ernest Jordan, who called his home state the perfect laboratory to compare those named the first families of Virginia with what he considered the worst stock, the feeble-minded poor. These studies would lead directly to the Racial Integrity Act of 1924, supported by the Anglo-Saxon Club, who had founded two posts in Charlottesville, one for the town and one for the students at the University of Virginia. Marriages between white and black people had long been illegal, But the categories of those deemed mixed race were blurry, as it was sometimes difficult to determine their race based on looks alone. Every resident of Virginia was required to register with the State Bureau of Vital Statistics to be classified by race. All doctors were legally forced to report the racial history of the infants they birthed. This was done in order to keep racial degeneracy from infiltrating the middle and upper class, especially because so many mixed race people were able to pass as white. Terms previously used in animal breeding became commonplace, and when Harvard got in on eugenics as well, like most universities, Professor William McDougall proposed that those of his superior stock, called the aristogenic, who inherited eliteness at birth through proper breeding, should be separated into a community called eugenia, centered around, what else, but a university. Leading eugenicist Charles Davenport popularized the idea that incest was widespread in Appalachia and was considered one of the cardinal sins against upper-class white stock. These ideas would lead to mass sterilizations of those labeled feeble-minded who were almost always considered sexual deviants, a great deal of them poor whites along with racial minorities. There was even a process called mountain sweeps that involved the police driving into Appalachia to forcibly remove, institutionalize, and sterilize pretty much anyone they wanted to. These procedures, though, were performed at a higher rate on those considered feeble-minded in the southern states, so much so that they garnered a crude nickname, Mississippi Appendectomies. These laws helped comfort the elite to seal their privilege in both whiteness and class, their superiority in manners and education. These people got to believe that they deserved everything they had, that it was the natural order On the other side of the coin, the impoverished deserved their position, too. Our upcoming series on the history of the anti-abortion movement will conclude in the years before abortion became federally legal, and certainly before the mass religious pro-life movement that we know today. All that didn't really start until after the landmark case of Roe versus Wade. And as we'll see in the next section, the allegedly heroic motivations of this new religious movement were not as sacred as they seemed. 
as we'll also see, this whole thing had a lot more to do with money and white supremacy than it did baby protection. In fact, we can see a concerted effort to employ the oldest moral panic tactic in the book. Because nothing can inspire outrage like dangers to our children. And nothing can get powerful lobbies what they want quite like public outrage. Take a listen. In 1973, another right-wing religious political activist and commentator named Paul Weyrich founded the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank created explicitly to address liberal policies of taxation. And then he founded the Committee for the Survival of a Free Congress, which worked to train conservative activists, fund conservative causes, and support conservative candidates. The CSFC invited Laszlo Pazder into the organization, and he would become Wyrick's right-hand man. Wyrick seemed to overlook the fact that Pazder was the former leader of the Arrow Cross Party in Hungary that had collaborated with Hitler during World War II. Pazder had served just two years in prison in Hungary before traveling to the United States in the 1950s, hoping to continue the fight against communism and to help guide the Cold War efforts. He worked his way into the ethnic outreach arm of the Republican National Committee, and by 1968, he turned it into a permanent unit called the Republican Heritage Group's Council, where he recruited Pazder and a handful of others who would be integrated, perhaps unknowingly, into government positions up until the administration of George Bush Sr., when a handful of these high-up officials would be forced to resign after they were exposed as former Nazi collaborators. In addition to working closely with the former leader of the Arrow Cross Party in Hungary, Paul Weyrich also teamed up with Jerry Falwell Sr. to create, drumroll please, the moral majority. In fact, Weyrich even coined the term. This handful of evangelical influencers that would pull together to form the moral majority were reacting to a 1970 Supreme Court and IRS decision that private schools that still practice segregation would no longer be eligible for their tax-exempt status. 17 years after Brown versus the Board of Education ordered the integration of public schools. This caused outrage among evangelicals who felt that their religious freedom to segregate was coming under attack, and this threat to take away their government benefits was the last straw of 1970s liberalism and the final nail in the coffin of the evangelical value of staying out of politics. This landmark case centered around a university called Bob Jones, the most prominent Christian college in America, but it also applied to Jerry Falwell's private Liberty University in Virginia. For these two colleges, as well as for most white Christian private schools in general, segregation had been a backbone of policy and ideology, as Bob Jones Sr. himself put it in a 1920s Easter Sunday address called, Is Segregation Scriptural? His conclusion went, quote, If you are against racial segregation, then you are against God Almighty. 
This had been a belief in American culture all the way back to the 1600s, and throughout history, preachers had used ridiculous biblical interpretations to support slavery, Jim Crow laws, and then racial segregation. The court battle over this infringement on what they called religious freedom would last for more than a decade. And in 1975, as the IRS was putting pressure on the university again, they would finally change their policies to officially admit black students, but only those that were already married out of fear of racial mixing. Any interracial dating of the student body or any affiliation with any group that supported interracial relationships would lead to immediate expulsion. In order to not bend to the federal government's will, they would lose their tax-exempt status. And Bob Jones University would keep their ban on interracial dating all the way until the year 2000. If you're like me, you kind of assumed that the moral majority, that is, the Christian right, started as a reaction to the advancement of gay rights and other gay liberal feminist witchcraft signs of social decay, but most prominently, the evils of abortion. The fact that I thought this to be true is not a coincidence, and Wyrick himself would admit that the moral majority's sudden anti-abortion rally and cry was simply a sensational kind of moral crusade that could easily cloak their real agenda. Contrary to popular belief, prior to the late 1970s, abortion was not high on the list of evangelical grievances, largely considered a Catholic issue. Though Roe v. Wade would cause a minor stir, it would be a footnote compared to the unbridled passion of the next several decades. It all started with a preacher, sometimes called the intellectual godfather of the Christian right, Francis A. Schaeffer, who created a series of anti-abortion films, the first of its kind. Teaming up with pediatric surgeon C. Everett Koop, the pair toured the country with graphic and emotional media that promoted the idea that abortion would lead inevitably to the mass killing of live babies. Whatever happened to the human race is being washed down the sink drains with the murdered remains of the unborn babies in today's hospitals. One scene shows, dramatically, a bunch of plastic baby dolls lying, presumably deceased, on the shores of the Dead Sea. Evangelicals all over the nation were hearing the message that little babies were being satanically brutally slaughtered by liberals of all stripes, which, as we know, has always been a potent piece of atrocity propaganda. This tour would influence our political landscape up until the present day, as the religious right flexed their muscle power again, sending sympathetic evangelicals in mass to the polls. Many in this crusade started calling themselves the New Abolitionists, a contradiction that could not be more nauseatingly stark when we know the underlying history. The moral majority would see their first major political victory in 1980 with the election of Ronald Reagan, whose policies would take shape in part through this powerful lobby. Now I realize it's fashionable in some circles to believe that no one in government should encourage others to read the Bible. That we're, we're told that we'll violate the constitutional separation of church and state established by the founding fathers in the First Amendment. The First Amendment 
was not written to protect people and their laws from religious values. It was written to protect those values from government tyranny. As governor of California, Reagan had passed the most liberal abortion law in the state in the late 1960s. But 13 years later, likely at the encouragement of the moral majority, he became the anti-abortion presidential candidate, vowing and eventually fighting to overturn Roe v. Wade. And then in 1982, with eyes on that long-term prize, the moral majority came incredibly close to a victory for their underlying goal, as the Reagan administration attempted to reverse the IRS policy and restore tax exemption for schools with varying racial policies. At the announcement of the reversal, however, civil rights groups sounded the alarm, and Reagan was forced to reverse his position yet again, causing many on the evangelical right to accuse him of betrayal. Hopefully this information will help paint a more complete picture of the history we'll be covering as we talk about the origins of the anti-abortion movement. Thanks to all who worked on these past episodes, Queer Commo Studios, Miranda Zickler, Will Rogers, and Riley Smith, who also put together this episode. Thanks, as always, for listening, and I hope you have a great week despite all that we are living through on a daily basis. Have a great week. <laughs>